Welcome to Maine's Oyster Aquaculture Podcast. My name is Bill Pernow. Here we have weekly conversations with oyster farmers, many who are marine biologists, ninth-generation fishermen, or former hedge fund guys, but all are driven by the desire to work on the water and to fight the impact of climate change. These are global stories just told locally. Maine faces some big challenges. The Gulf of Maine is the second fastest warming body of water on the planet. But these folks have ideas and solutions driven by science and innovation. These entrepreneurs are a resilient, gritty group. Oyster Aquaculture cleans water, helps coastal communities, preserves Maine's working waterfront, just as it contributes to Maine's economy, the food scene, and tourism. These are stories told with humor and optimism about the best oysters in the world. George has been in the seafood business for four decades. He's been instrumental in creating the reputation of Maine oysters. He takes a firm stand when buyers from away come to Maine and try to drive the oyster price down, rather than pay a fair price for what many consider to be among the best oysters in the world. His sense of fairness has benefited not only his clients, but all of Maine oyster growers. George, who came to Maine from New York City, is candid, funny, and direct. To say George is an interesting character would be an understatement. I quickly realized he has an encyclopedic knowledge that he easily draws from. And George has probably forgotten more than many people know about this business. He, like his partner, Dana Street, have been a significant influence in creating Portland's well-deserved reputation as one of the best seafood and food towns in the United States. Dana Street has a prestigious portfolio of some of Portland's best restaurants. Street & Company, 4th Street with Sam Haywood, Standard Bakery with Allison Prey, Scales Restaurant on the main wharf next to Upstream Trucking. Upstream Trucking is the seafood wholesaling business that George runs, and that is where I met George. So I've been in the fish business for over 40 years. I started in D.C., and I ended up in New York in the Fulton Market in 81 under the Brooklyn Bridge. And then I ended up working with an Iranian caviar, the Iranian caviar cartel for the United States out of D.C. for like four years. And then we had a falling out with Iran. And so I had been selling a lot of salmon roe to the Japanese. So this Japanese company picked me up. And they sent me up here to do sea urchins. And that was 88. And then I did 60 million pounds of sea urchins in 10 years out of the state of Maine. So I had buying stations all over the coast. So I had a, a name on the coast of Maine. And then when that all ended, I didn't want to go back to New York. So I went to Dana and I said, we should set up a fish business because I can make you money and I can make a living. So we started out just selling 4th Street and Street and a couple other accounts around town. And then, and I was doing it all by myself. I'd drive down to Boston at four o'clock in the morning and get done at six o'clock in the evening. So So you were servicing Dana and, and Sam Haywood's restaurants by yourself from Boston. Well, I buy in Boston, I buy here yeah. as well. Okay. So you know, and then I started picking up more and more accounts and they actually started coming to me, I started getting a reputation. So now I have a pretty good reputation in town, and I 
Champions League. So I became a really big player in the oyster business. And everybody says, can we get the price down? Can we get the price down? And I was like, the demand is so strong. And this guy who just came out from Baltimore, he's like, this is ridiculous. He goes, this is a huge bubble here. And he goes, you're part of the problem. And I'm going, no, because every time I turn around, there's somebody like you coming up here fighting at my haunches, and I need enough product to take care of my accounts. So this is a bubble. These are the highest-priced oysters in North America, and there's a good reason for it. They're an exceptional quality oyster, my feeling. I mean, some of them are like fine white wines or something. They're amazing. And uh, <clears throat> because they all develop their own unique flavor from where they live from their environment. So I started out with just like two or three farms, and now I think I deal with like a dozen of them. So tell me, George, what do you think makes the best oyster? My preference for oysters are deep water oysters, or usually deep water oysters. And the brackish water oysters, I don't think are where it's at. All of them are Scottish spaces. They call it a river, but it's not a river. It's an estuary. Yeah, so it's right. all saltwater right. oysters. They're all good oysters right? for the most part. Basket Islands are one of the best oysters on the coast. Right. I mean, they really are very, uh, they've got a very complicated flavor. Right. Uh, guys who do, um, who sink them and they grow slower, they, they get a lot better flavor and are a lot sturdier shell. This, the shell from the surface grown are, are less... Right, because uh, they're not picking up enough minerals for the shell quality, yeah. and they're also not picking up enough flavor because they're sitting on the surface. And they grow really fast, which is why they, they like surface it. grow. Because right. they can grow out a lot of oysters really right. quickly. Hopefully in two years rather than three years. Or four. I mean, basket, they, it takes them like four years to grow out because they're in deep water, but they taste phenomenal. There's oysters grown in the state of Maine in brackish water by river at the mouth of rivers. And they don't have the flavor because brackish water doesn't give you a good briny flavor. They're like plants. Like you put a plant here and it'll die. You put it here and it'll thrive. Right. So that's the problem with the oysters. They gotta figure out exactly where they can, where they can grow and thrive. So, you know, that's, and that's why they're all bunched up on the Denver Scotta because it's got a huge plankton flow coming in I and out of there. Every great day. salt pond, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask, ask you, uh, like, what are the future plans? How do you see upstream trucking into the future? Well, we keep, we're doing more and more out of state shipping. That's the only thing I, that's, the only that's my, one of my other so questions. So, yeah. right now, like, all my accounts are on the peninsula. I've taken all the best accounts on it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, we are doing more and more shipping into New York and stuff and Boston and stuff like that. But there's only so much we can grow because we're important. We're not, we can't, we, it's hard for us to compete with Gloucester and Bedford. The fish prices here, it's like this guy from Warshore, he's like, this place is a bubble. Everything's so expensive here. It is, but it's also the best quality. Like right. the fish that's landed at the auction, the best quality on the eastern seaboard. 
I hate buying fish from New Bedford and Gloucester because it's all shit, and they still unload them with pitchforks. So you get these fish, and you're fucking holes in them. So this whole direct-to-consumer is blowing up. Because people don't, I mean, during the thick of it, nobody wanted to even go to the store. So what happened is a lot of retail stores were kind of shutting down at the time, and then people would go online. So the retail stores have opened up, but the quality of product they're getting online is five times the quality from the local seafood store in Cincinnati, Ohio, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. Kansas City, Missouri. I mean, they never get good fish. So now they're getting, like, top-shelf fish delivered right to their door. They're paying top-shelf prices. So what do you think What do you think are some of the biggest challenges on the horizon right now that, that are potential uh, challenges for, say, the main oyster aquaculture? Main, the biggest problem in the near future is there's so many farms. Mm. And they, it, there will come a day mm. when their mm. prices are going to go down. I don't know when that's going to be. I keep thinking it's going to be when COVID hit. I thought, oh, the prices are going to go down. But it was just a blip. And then everybody started doing curbside and outdoor seating and everything else. And the, so they're, I keeping, they're keeping actually, the demand. Oh, yeah. I have restaurants that are doing as much or more than when they were regularly open. I mean, you go to East Ender, they got more seats outside than they had inside. It's a lot more work doing all this outdoor stuff. Sure, sure. So but they're, they're, it's a lot more labor. Right. So you have more overhead, but everybody's surviving for the most part. I mean, a lot of people didn't survive, unfortunately. Break mm. my heart, like mm. Richard's wife. All a mm. lot of really talented guys. So was Drifter's wife a result of the COVID? Oh yeah, yeah. But they were. I mean, he just was nominated for best chef in New England. Excuse me? He was just yeah. nominated for so, but, so a lot of these guys tried to do curbside or takeout when this all came down. Someone started it, and they just, they would they were losing money. Because any time you go into a new venture, you're losing money. There's a learning curve. There's getting the people there to come to you. Right. Everything else, and so, but the ones who stuck with it actually did very well. So I mean, like when this came down, fifteenth of March. I mean, I just, I was crying. Like I'd worked twenty years building this business, and it was like, I just saw it all just dissolving in front of me, and it was like a month and a half before I really got the wheels back on the truck started moving again. What's what's the question that I'm not asking that I should be asking? When this all shut down for two weeks, I was just I was just suddenly breaking into tears. My wife's like, you're grieving. You got to stop grieving. So I'm mm. like, okay, I'm grieving. I got to get back on the track. So I got back on the track. And I mean, it was just three of us for a month and a half. And then finally we were working like 10 hours a day, going home and collapsing. And then we started bringing the crew back. And we, like, I didn't ship a truck to Boston until the 1st of May, because I didn't, I mean, I was bringing up whatever I needed on a common carrier, because I was only buying like four or 500 pounds of fish at a time. Mm. I mean, I'd fill a, a uh, 18-foot box truck. So now it's getting to the point where I'm pulling it again. So. Got it. Good. <laughs> if you like stories like this, visit MainOysterBook.com for more conversations 
with the people who have and are creating the story of Maine oyster aquaculture. And you can pre-order the new book from Perna Content, Maine Oysters, Stories of Resilience and Innovation. This book is filled with wonderful insights from very interesting people, and it's filled with stunning photography from some of Maine's best photographers. Perna Content is very pleased that Oyster Grow has joined the Maine Oyster Aquaculture Podcast. Oyster Grow equipment and systems have been developed through many years of innovation and testing. The Oyster Grow system offers the knowledge and the equipment required for cost-efficient commercial production of high-quality oysters. Oyster Grow, designed to deliver. For more information, visit OysterGrow.com or call Oyster Grow's New England distributor, Thomas Henninger, at 207-318-5617. Portion of the proceeds of this podcast and Maine Oyster Book are contributed to the Maine Community Foundation. The Maine Community Foundation works to improve the quality of life for all Maine people. To find out more, visit maincf.org. See you next week, and thanks for listening.